One more time, that's Mark 7, verses 14 to 23, found on page 843. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Just uh, another announcement as we get started. Maybe you uh, have been joining us the last several weeks, and you're thinking, I'm starting to believe this. What does it mean to be a Christian? Just love to uh, have you contact me. We're gonna have a little class just going over basics, and it's a time for you to ask questions. All your questions bring all your doubts, and uh, we'll talk about what it means to be a Christian. And especially if you're thinking, you know what? I'm a Christian. I haven't been baptized this is a great setup for you. So uh, come and, and learn what we need to learn, and then let's, let's move forward in pursuing what Jesus has for us. So you can talk to me after the service. You can email me. You can text me. Find me somehow. I'm here waiting for you, all right? But let's pray. We'll come before God's word together. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for your word. And now, Lord, uh, the height of our worship is just to hear you speak and believe So I pray that you'd help me to teach this faithfully. Lord, get me out of the way where I need to be out of the way. Help me present Jesus and what he's done and what that means for us. And we pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would speak to each one of us from your word, that we would each, um, more than just hear a speech, that we would know we have heard God. And Lord, that you would apply this to each one of us and bring us to yourself more and more. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So, what does it mean? What does it mean to be a Christian? If you ask people that question, you get a, you'll get a variety of answers. In my experience, many people will say, if I ask you that question, what, what, is it, what do you think it means to be a Christian? Many people will say, well, I try hard to be a good person. And, and let's, be, let's be fair. We can see why people think this way. Maybe that's you this morning. When we answer that way, what are we acknowledging? Well, we're acknowledging there is a right and a wrong. We're acknowledging there is a God. We're acknowledging God wants me to be good. True? And shouldn't I try to be good? Sometimes it seems like I can be good, at least better than other days. Maybe that's what you're thinking this morning. With that point of view in mind, it's rather shocking to hear Jesus' words. So look in your Bible. If you're using the chair Bibles, page 843, look at verse 20. He said to them, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil. We could just stop right there. What comes out of your heart? Evil. Where's evil primarily found for you? Is it, is it primarily something that happens to you or something that influenced you? Or is it primarily something you actually are? You actually want it. You actually invent it. And you get all these ways evil expresses itself. But we see out of the heart comes evil. That's just, if you believe this, it's, it's devastating. If Christianity is about making yourself into a good person, then according to Jesus anyway, evidently no one can actually be a Christian except for maybe him. Jesus is saying to every person in the world, you aren't fundamentally good and you actually can't be a good person on your own. It's a failed project. It won't work. Because in yourself, at the deepest place, your heart, your core person, you actually prefer what is evil. Do you think that's true? If you're honest with yourself, do you think that's true about you? 
We're deeply challenged here, aren't we? I mean, these are words that are always countercultural. Doesn't matter where you are, doesn't matter what time period in history you're in. It was counterculture to Jesus' moment, it's countercultural to our to today's moment. Um, Jesus is not saying that everything about everyone is as evil as it could possibly be. Let's not get that wrong. He's not saying you're as evil as you could possibly be every conceivable way. No. But he is saying the source of evil is, is in us. So if this is true, well, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean? It can't be, hey, make, try to be a better person. That, that can't be it. So what is it? Well, we're continuing our study through the Gospel of Mark. Let's remember just basics. Uh, Mark was an associate of the Apostle Peter. The Apostle Peter was an eyewitness of the life of Jesus. So Mark wrote this 30, 40 years after Jesus' life. And as Jesus is talking about the nature of the human problem with his audience, I want you to see where he goes. Again, look in your Bibles, Mark chapter 7, verse 6. He says there, this people honors me with their lips, but their, what? Their heart is far from me. So we need to see Jesus is talking to religious people who have a moral framework and no parts of the Bible. They went to Sunday school, but they're still somehow missing it. In fact, they're far from God. And in fact, Jesus says of them, your relationship with God is vain, it's worthless. It's like you don't even have one because he doesn't have your heart. And so Jesus wants everybody to see Christianity is fundamentally an issue of your heart. It's an issue of your heart. So this is our second Sunday in this passage. We impact a lot of it last week. If you missed that, it is on our website. And just as we move forward, this, this morning's sermon is going to be a little different. I'm going to start in Mark, and then I'm going to move out of Mark into some other scriptures just to dig into more of how God saves us and changes our hearts. Because here's the question. If my heart is the problem, how do I get that problem fixed? Because I obviously can't fix it because I am the problem. I mean, when my heart's at its worst, I actually don't want to fix the problem. I like not liking God. I like not loving God. So what on earth would change me to like God, love him, and obey him? And, and Mark kind of leaves us hanging here. Jesus drops this bomb on everybody. Your heart's the problem. You're evil. What do we do now? And then Mark seems to be moving right along. Wait a second. What do we do now? But, you know, you, you read ahead. And you see how the whole of Mark's gospel is written. And all the spotlight and it, all the emphasis in the end is on Jesus' death and resurrection. And there's the secret. Because you and I have an enormous benefit that Jesus' original audience in that moment did not have at the time. We live in light of the cross and the resurrection. That's everything. We live in light of the cross and resurrection. So it's in that power of what Jesus done has done that you and I can have a new heart. And having a new heart towards God is what it really means. It's what it really means to be a Christian. So... I want us to see some of how this works together before we leave this passage and move on. Uh, I want you to actually have some honest clarity on whether or not this all-important heart change has happened to you. I want you to walk out of here having pondered, is my heart changed? Why or why not? I want us all to, to also lean in on this important thing God has done for us because if you are a Christian, your heart has been changed and you need to lean into it. And so we'll see some of what that means, Lord willing. So four points if you're taking notes. Or kids, if you're filling out your clipboard thing, come up and show me your outline. I'll give you a high five, all right? Number one, the declaration. We're gonna see Jesus make a declaration. Number two, the transformation. Number three, the renovation. Number four, applications. You see, I did that. I went to preaching class, and they all end with uns. Declaration. Transformation, renovation, application. Every once in a while, I stumble into that, and it works. Yes. First, the declaration. All right, we're actually going to start with a statement in this passage. We didn't deal with it all last week. Modern readers like you and I, we read it. It's easy to fly right by it. But look at Mark 7, 18. Jesus says, right, 
Do you not see whatever goes into the person is from outside cannot defile him since it does not enter his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? But look at the next phrase. Thus he declared all foods clean. And we read that and we're like, okay, let's move on. But hold on. If you're a first century Jew, this is a bucket of cold water. Hold on, what did you just say? Okay, if you've ever read through the Old Testament, you notice in God's law, there are food laws. There is clean, there is unclean. You can eat, you can eat this, you cannot eat that. We think, well, why? The main point is this, to, this is to set Israel apart from the other nations. Every day with something so simple and so regular as what you eat, you remember every day what gives you life. You're not like everybody else. You're different. So this is part of what made them distinct, holy to the Lord, set apart to the Lord, belonging to the Lord. And it's according to his word. We don't invent it. He invents it. So he says what's up, and we do it, and we're different as part of their holiness. And throughout the centuries, Israel took this very seriously. And you just ponder, historically, I mean, this is the people that went into exile and returned, and they remained, they, they kept their distinctiveness culturally and religiously. And part of it was these food laws. So now you can imagine at least, at least a little bit how shocking it is for them to hear Jesus say, well, that's over now. He has the audacity to seemingly actually change God's word and say what God say that what God's people have been denying for hundreds and hundreds of years. No, that's fine. And I'm sure there'd be two questions in their mind. We see it later in the New Testament. Why would you say this, number one? Why would you say this? And number two, what gives you the right to say this? So let's think about why he would say this. Uh, another thing you'll notice as you read the Old Testament is how Israel could not keep any of God's laws, any of God's laws. They continually turned to the worship of man-made gods and the disobedience that comes from that. Because listen, friends, know this. It's not whether or not you worship. No, everybody worships. You, you all live for something. You do. You all live for something. You find your ultimate joy, your value, your identity in something, and you follow that thing. You obey it all the time, every day. The question is, who is it that you're worshiping? Is it the real God or not? So Israel is really an illustration for the whole human race. Here it is, these people have God's law. And a lot of time we think, oh, if we just had righteous laws, everything would be better. Have you read the Old Testament? Look at what Jeremiah said, Jeremiah 17, nine. This is the prophet Jeremiah. Here's, here's the problem. Jesus Jesus didn't say anything new, really. What's deceitful above all things? The heart. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So just by the way, you might need a little more skepticism towards some of the voices of our cultural moment. Every commercial, podcast, TV shows, follow your heart. Do what feels right. What if your heart is a sick liar? At any rate, God himself promises to take care of the fundamental problem. Still in Jeremiah, we read it this morning as we began our worship, Jeremiah 31, 33. There's gonna be a new covenant with God's people. A covenant is a, is a serious commitment of relationship. And there's gonna be a new one for God and his people. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Look, I will put my law where? within them, and I will write it on their hearts. Now, obviously, that's not literal. What does that mean? Your heart's what you love. It's what you love the most. And now your heart has changed to actually love God and his ways and want to do them. This changes everything. They love God and his ways from the heart. And then just think of these, these great benefits, right? Um, I'll put my law within them, write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people, verse 34. 
No longer shall each teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord. They shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. In this new covenant, who gets to have a relationship of closeness, friendship, intimacy with God? All of us. All of God's people. There's there's no varsity Christian who gets to really know God. God is saying to you, if you trust his son, he's, he's all about you knowing him in relationship. And then because you know him, you want to obey him because he's your favorite. You think, oh, that doesn't sound like freedom. Well, you've never been in love, have you? Anybody remember? Can you imagine what it means to fall in love? What are you trying to do all the time for that person? Trying to please them, aren't you? People say, oh, obeying God, that's like a straitjacket. It takes away my freedom. Oh, you don't know what love is, do you? People who really love someone else and long to please that person, they say, that is my freedom. That is my freedom. This is the freedom of the Christian. We get to know God and love him and live to please him. And we know we're completely forgiven of all their sin. Did you see that? They shall all know me, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Can you imagine? Can you imagine having coffee with God? Oh, it's not going to happen in that way, I know. But imagine you're relating with him and you're like, you know, my sin. And maybe it's something you've already confessed. And he's like, my sin. And he's like, when was that? Now, he knows. He knows all things. But imagine, he doesn't, he doesn't take any of your sin into account in the sense that there is no wrath towards you in any way, shape, or form. It's as if he's forgotten you ever did it. And if you know anything about your sin and your heart, that's really good news. So let's back up. Why, why did Jesus say he declared all foods clean? Friends, you unpack all these things. Jesus is saying he's the one who brings this new covenant. He is the one who brings this new relationship with God. Being set apart to God will no longer be seen in keeping Mosaic Law food regulations. Oh, no. Being set apart to God is now seen in belonging to Jesus Christ. That's what it means. So in the context of Jesus talking about our heart problems, he also shows us the heart solution. It's him. It's him. That's why Jesus says this. He's bringing the new covenant. Second question, what gives him the right to say this? In all honesty, you would need to be God to say that God's word has been fulfilled in this way. So we have to ask again, who is Jesus? And if you've been with us for very long, Mark has been showing us the entire time. He told us in Mark 1, verse 1, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's what gives him the right. And then look at something else, Luke twenty-two twenty. 20. It's right before Jesus' death, celebrating the Passover with his disciples. He hands them the cup. Look what he says. Likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is, what is it? The new covenant in my blood. He's referring to God's promise in Jeremiah that the new covenant is coming, and this cup represents what he will do on the cross. So he is saying, as I die for you, I am accomplishing the new covenant for you. You're going to know God like that because of what I am doing for you on the cross. That gives him the right to say this. He bought the new covenant. He came to accomplish it, and that's Jesus' declaration. He changes hearts. He will. His mission will be accomplished. He will change the hearts of all his people. He has, he is, he will. That's the declaration. Jesus changes hearts by bringing the new covenant. Now the transformation. So for this, we're actually going to leave Mark for a little bit and go to 1 Peter. Why did I pick 1 Peter? There's a lot of places you could go to look at how Jesus changes hearts. But hey, like we said, 
Mark is most likely written from Peter's account of the life of Jesus. So let's go see what Peter says about this idea of a changed heart. So now we're seeing the transformation. Just like Mark, Peter is writing to Gentile Christians in a Roman culture. Look at Peter 1, verse 20. We're just gonna walk through some of this. Jesus was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you. Let's just ponder that for a little bit. A lot we could say. The last time started, the last days started when Jesus rose from the dead. He's made manifest. What does it mean? He came to be seen, to be known. He took on flesh. And who did, what, who did he come for? For the sake of you. And, and who are these people? They're Gentiles throughout parts of Asia who have believed the gospel. And so how are you supposed to hear this today? Why did Jesus come? He came for you. He came for you. It's personal. Now verse 21. You who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. We start to see evidences here of the new heart. Evidences of the new heart. Number one, through him you are believers in God. So it's this personal trust that Jesus came for you, died for you, rose for you. You believe that God raised him from the dead. And now look, your faith and your hope are in God. It's another picture of the new heart. What is hope? You're hoping some good is going to come. There's something good out there to live for, to experience. I hope it's coming. And now in the new heart, where's your hope? Do you see? It's in God. Come on, isn't that part of a new heart? Where'd you put your hope before you knew Jesus? Politics, your abilities, your goodness, a relationship one day, success. My fundamental hope is something here that I can do maybe. We still have some of those hopes, fine, but where's your capital H-O-P-E hope now that you have a new heart? God is your hope. The God of the Bible, the God who saved you in Christ, the God of the Bible, he is your hope. That's a picture of the new heart. You trust him, what he's done for you. We'll keep going. Look at verse 22. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. Not a perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So obedience to the truth, verse 22, that's when you believed the gospel and what happened to your soul in Peter's language? Purified your soul. Your core self was washed, made clean, made new. It's, it's the same thing as a new heart. When you, this, this is what happened. If you're a Christian, this is what happened to you. Somehow you heard the gospel. You encountered the news of Jesus and what he's done for you. And the Holy Spirit came to you. And he, there's a lot of language in the New Testament for this. He called you. Or he removed the blanket from your head. Or he, he let light shine in your heart. Or here it's, it's used, he gave you new birth. You were born again. Because, you know, some of you, if you converted as an adult, don't you remember hearing about Jesus and being like, I don't care. I don't care. I don't believe that. I don't care. And then at some point, something went, ah, and you cared. You cared very much. You, you saw the goodness of Christ. You saw your sin. You, I need you. You trusted him. What happened? The spirit came and implanted God's word in a changed heart. He regenerated you or he gave you new birth. So we ask, right, what did you have to do with your human birth? What did you have to do with that? 
pre-birth? Did, you know, did an angel come with an outline? What would you like? What, what part of history? How many siblings? Oh. What would you like? Your, oh, no, you had, what did you have to do with it? Nothing. Nothing. What do you have to do with your spiritual new birth? Nothing. Because your heart's evil. But the Spirit says, hey, he calls you. The Spirit of God calls you. And, the, and the, the heart is changed, and the light comes on, and now you see the gospel in a new way. I need this. And just like you didn't make yourself get born, but when you got born, what did you start doing? You start living, right? You start screaming and eating and, and all that other stuff you started doing. Because you're alive now. And it's the same thing when God changes your heart and gives you new birth. You're responding to the gospel now with faith. You're trusting Jesus and his word because you have a new heart. And look at this. Your heart is so changed. What can you do? End of verse 23. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you've been born again. You see that? You've been born again. Your heart has changed. Now what can you do? Love one another earnestly. Because you know what the old heart thinks about Christians in church? And fooey, right? Ugh. Hypocrites, I tried that. Ugh. But now a new heart sees God's people in a different way. Because I'm like, I've been so loved by Jesus. I don't deserve it. And he loves those people too. And now I have a new heart to love Jesus and I've got to love what he loves. And whether or not they deserve it, that doesn't have much to do with it. Because he loved me when I didn't deserve it. So now we love one another from a pure heart. Do you see the transformation here? This is transformation. Jesus made the declaration, I have come to bring the new covenant where I will change my people's hearts and I earned it through my life, death, and resurrection. And now the transformation. These people just living in a Gentile world, a Roman world, they hear the gospel. The spirit changes their hearts. They believe, and now they're different. That's their transformation. If you're a Christian, this has happened to you. You should praise God just for this. Thank you. In fact, this is a bigger miracle than if you were, uh, your, legs, your legs were cut off and they grew back. That would be awesome, right? Did you hear what happened at church? This guy had no legs. The pastor prayed for him. They grew back. Everybody would be like, amazing. That's, I've never seen that happen. But even if it did, that is nothing compared to a rebellious heart being changed to love God through Jesus Christ. That is the miracle. And if that's happened to you, you should be thrilled and so thankful. It's a transformation. God gave you new life. It's time to live for him. So the question we want to ask, right, we see from this passage in Mark 7, it's very easy to be religious with no heart change. It's very easy to know theological facts with no heart change. It's very easy. So the question you have to ask yourself, is my heart changed? The question you need to ask God, have you changed my heart? Or maybe some of you need to say, please change my heart. And by the way, if you're praying that, then it might be a clue he's changing it right now. Change my heart. Did you see what the core of Christianity is? It's not just believing facts. Hey, don't get me wrong, theological facts, essential. But it's not just believing theological facts. Being a good person, we're going to see uh, living in light of God's law, that's kind of important for us. We actually do want to be good people. But that's not the heart of being a Christian. You can do all sorts of moralistic stuff and have a heart that's very cold towards God. The core of Christianity is a transformed heart. So we've seen the declaration, the transformation, now the renovation. We're going to stay in 1 Peter. I want to make it clear, a new heart doesn't mean you're instantly living a perfect life. Can I get an Amen. Some of you are like, hey, what about me? No. <laughs> Look again. <laughs> doesn't mean you're instantly per living a perfect life. Obviously, far from it. It doesn't mean God's work is finished in you. It means it's begun in you. And it will be finished. And just like you got born, then you need to grow up. Same thing with the Christian life. 
You got born. It's awesome. You're fundamentally changed. Now you need to grow up. Peter says this same, same section of scripture just above. Look at 1 Peter 1.14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Amen. First thing to see, through faith in Jesus, you are children of God. That's who you are. That heart change. You're a child of God. What an identity. And you don't have to earn this. It was purchased for you. And it's true, even though you're far from perfect, you are loved, you're accepted, you're embraced. Amen. But what kind of children do we want to be? What kind of children are we if our hearts have been changed? As obedient children. So I guess that's Peter's illustration. We've seen some children could not care less what their parents say. I will do this my way. Thank you very much, mom and dad. I don't care that you gave me life and feed me every day. Some kids are like that sometimes. Maybe we've all been like that for a moment sometimes. And yet sometimes you see the, the other side of the coin. This is kid really loves his mom or his dad. Parent asked him to do something. He says, I'd love to do that because I love you. We've seen it. Maybe that's been us before. That's just a picture of what we're supposed to be with our Father in heaven all the time. Obedient children. I love you. I want to obey. I want to obey. I want to see what it looks like to obey. I want to move into obeying. And so then Peter says, okay, because you're obedient children, as I like this language. It's funny to me. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So you've got a new heart, but there's still like shadows in your new heart, leftovers of the old heart. And so that's why I use the word renovation. You, you got rotten leftovers in the fridge. You need to clean out the fridge of your heart. You've, you've got mold growing in the walls of a section of your house. You got to renovate that section of your house. Just pictures of the heart. There's Passions of your former ignorance. So what are passions? Things the old heart wanted. And the way the old heart wanted it. You still have some of those, don't you? Passions of your former. That's not you anymore. That's not fundamentally you anymore. Passions of your former ignorance. Those passions are stupid about God. Do you see what he's saying? Those passions are godless. They're foolish. They're stupid about God. And so we don't want to be controlled by those anymore. We want to fight those off and move into holiness, being set apart to love and live for Jesus. Do you see? That's the renovation. We want to be different. I want to move into obeying God. And all the food laws, right? They just pointed to this reality. I love God and his word, and I want to obey him. Friends, if you're a Christian, this is you. This is you. It's a struggle. It's difficult. It's not always obvious, but this is what it means to be a Christian. Jesus has brought the new covenant. Your heart is transformed by the spirit through faith in him, and now you want to grow up into holiness and living in a way that's pleasing to him. You're going to watch your heart. You're going to renovate your heart by the power of the Holy Spirit according to God's word. So now to the application. We'll go back to Mark now. Mark 7, 21 to 23. We saw the list. For from within, out of the heart of man, come, and you get 13 by my count in English. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. It's like vomits of the evil heart. Evil heart's in here, and here it comes. All of these things. And let's be honest, right? Each one of us has been guilty of each one of some of these, each one of all of these things somehow from the heart. Guilty, right here. As Christians with new hearts, we regret it. Oh, 
I wish I hadn't been that way. I wish I wasn't that way. We regret it. And as Christians, we're forgiven of all of it. Praise God, forgiven, every single one. But now, because we have a changed heart, we should be able to look at these passions of our former ignorance and be like, I'm not doing that anymore in the same way. I don't want to do that anymore in the same way. I want to be different. Because that's what used to come out of my dead, ugly, old heart, and it still, still does sometimes. But I have a new heart now. I want to lean into something else. So listen, you could honestly take the time with the Bible, some prayer, and a notebook, and go through each one of these 13 things and consider your old heart and what it used to be like in this area, and then ponder what a new heart would look like instead. So we don't have time for all 13 today. I'm going to try out three applications of a new heart, okay? Number one, let's pick the hard one first. And you know what? They're all hard. Number one, if you're a Christian, you will experience a heart change regarding sexual immorality. Just get that out there on the airwaves. If you are a Christian, you will experience a heart change regarding sexual immorality. The Greek word here is porneia, and that should sound familiar to you. Porn. We all know that's a, a twisting of God's design. And the internet is a wonderful illustration of the human heart, isn't it? What is after you everywhere, all the time? Some sort of porneia. But it's not, it, it, it didn't start on the internet, it started in here. And that's why people keep going to it, because it starts in here. Porneia, as the New Testament uses the word, is any sexual activity of the mind or body that is outside of God's design of one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage. God designed to be, for, for sex to be the body-making covenant in the context of marriage, because that action says, I'm yours, yours alone, with all that I am for life. So sometimes when I'm talking with people who, who disagree on this, it's like, okay, so how would you feel if, you're, if your girlfriend or boyfriend slept with someone else? And they, they inevitably say, oh, I'd be outraged. Why? You don't care if they shake somebody's hand. Why? Because they know in their heart it means something. It's a loyalty. It's a connection. It's a commitment. It's, a, it's an embrace. And it should be exclusive somehow. Let's just have integrity with what we already know. We're, we're sensing an echo of God's design. It belongs in the covenant of a marriage between a man and a woman. And that's God's design. It's so good in 10,000 ways. What does the old heart do with sexuality? What does it do? I define myself. I define what's right for me. I do as I please. I use sexuality the way I and the world around me wants to. I use it for pleasure, power, manipulation, identity, security. And the old heart has its reasons. Well, it's my body. I'm free to do what I want. Everyone's doing it. I'm afraid I'll lose out on something if I don't. Now there's the heart change. Now there's the heart change. I hope in God, and I don't need to corrupt his gift of sexuality for these self-oriented reasons anymore. I hope in God. My heart has what it needs, not in this experience or this expression, but in him. He's my identity. He's my meaning. He's my purpose. So human bodies are not just commodities to use selfishly anymore. There's a whole person who deserves dignity and respect according to the integrity of God's word. So especially brothers, it could be brothers and sisters, especially brothers, your new heart, you got to fight porn. Cannot be practicing this. Get help. Pray, work. But look, 1 Corinthians 6, 8. This is what the new heart does because of what Jesus has done for us. Flee from sexual immorality. What does flee mean? Get on a horse, ride fast, the other way. Flee from sexual immorality. 
Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. The sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Paul's talking to people who have committed these sins in Corinth, everyone. We all have in some way from the heart. It doesn't mean you can't be forgiven. In Christ, you are forgiven. You are forgiven. It doesn't mean you can't serve God wonderfully now. He will wipe away, wash away every sin. You're his child, you're loved, you're righteous in Christ, you are forgiven. But the new heart, what does it want to do? I'm not doing that in the same way anymore. Because I have a new hope, a new love. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Do you not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? Do you see the dignity and value of your own body? In our culture, we love to, to value the body in a way as long as you're trim and beautiful or glossy or something like that. But our, our culture also isn't very into elderly people. I don't know if you've noticed. It's not cool anymore. And, and so sometimes, right, bodies are very broken down things. Um, but see the, the dignity Christianity gives to your body. If you're a Christian, God's presence dwells in that body right there. And you have such dignity, such preciousness, your body. And so you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. Christian, who owns your body? The Lord and living God who purchased you through the death of Jesus. So glorify God in your body. Isn't that what the new heart wants? That's what the new heart wants. Here's another thing. If you're a Christian, you will experience a heart change regarding slander. Did you catch that word in this list? Slander. What is slander? That is speech where you demean other people. Old heart, we love talking junk about other people, don't we? Whether or not it's substantiated, unsubstantiated, we love to talk garbage on other people. God only knows what percentage of some people's conversations is junk about other people. And it can weed itself into the church too, can it? Well, let's pray for this person. Spend 95% of that moment talking about how bad the person is and 5% to no percent praying for them. You don't need to share everything you know about other people. Honestly, you almost never need to share dark things you know about other people. And that's when it is substantiated. Sometimes you need to share it. Okay, Christian wisdom. But slander, you don't, you don't need to. And you got to ask, why does my old heart love talking about the negatives of other people? It's all my stories. It's my conversation. Why do we love that? I don't know. Maybe it feels good to have the inside scoop. Maybe it connects you with the people listening. Maybe it helps you feel superior in that moment. I don't know. Maybe it's because it's hard to talk about things that are more important or more enriching. It's hard to get into the heart or talk about what's good or beautiful or, or Christ-centered. Don't know what to say. Well, I could, there's a lot of negatives out there. Like, let's talk about that. I don't know. But the new heart, the new heart. Have you ever thought about this? How does Jesus talk to the Father about you? He intercedes for you. Or if you read Romans 8, Paul says there, right? Who is the one to condemn? Nobody can condemn you, even when you're obviously guilty. And why? Because God has justified you. You know how Jesus speaks of you? Righteous. Does he know your junk? Yeah. He didn't just, he doesn't just spout it. He died for it. Do you see how it's a totally different attitude? He actually took the price of other people's failures on himself. And now in his grace, he speaks well of his undeserving people. Wow. Here's a picture of the new heart and speech, Ephesians 4, 29. Everything gets quieter when we read this verse. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. How much? No. What about if you're angry? 
or tired? I think it stays still no. No corrupting talk. Lord, help me. I mean, honestly, friends, just my mouth would be enough to send me to an eternal hell. Not even kidding. Just my mouth. Thank Jesus died for my mouth. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it could give grace to those who hear. Now look at verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Remember, the Spirit's the one who changed your heart to love Jesus. And so when this kind of talk is coming out of our mouths, the Spirit himself is actually grieved. That's not what I saved you for. It's not in line with who I've made you to be. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. How should we be, church? Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And how did he forgive you? He totally forgave you. How do you need to forgive others? Totally forgive others. Not because they deserve it. You didn't deserve it. He did it for you by his grace. This is part of the new covenant. If you have a new heart, it will change how you talk. Third application. We'll finish with this one. If you are a Christian, you will experience a heart change regarding pride. Jesus put that one in the list, pride. And we can use in English, right? We can use the word pride in different ways. Hey, I'm really proud of my, of my son. That's a good way to say it. That's like, it's a, um, you're thankful for what God has done. Uh, you're thankful for goodness in the world, work that saw fruit. There's a good way to use that word, right? I'm not demeaning that. But there's another way we use it. We know it very well, right? Arrogance. That's what this word means. It's a swollen estimation of yourself, in some way that looks down on others with insolence or contempt. And we look for things to be prideful about, don't we? Because pride and insecurity, both go, they go together. What are pride and insecurity both looking at? Self, in light of others. So insecurity, oh, they have this, I don't have it. I'm not who I should be. I, can, is there anything in here to be proud of? Oh, this, let's... I'll be prideful about this. Oh, you guys don't have that, do you? Pride, arrogance, all those people. Not me, I'm better somehow. What do, you, what do you take an ungodly pride in? Your enlightenment about what's going on in the world, your intelligence, theological knowledge, kindness, something you gave to charity, something you've done. Well, that sets me up here, but you guys are over there. Pride, oh, Christian, how great are you in yourself? The old heart sets myself against others. I'm better for this reason, that reason. The new heart looks at the cross. Listen, there is room for you at the cross, but one thing the cross won't let you bring is pride. How great are you? Let's ask it like this. What did God have to do to save you? Jesus had to go on a cross. What does that do to your pride? Can you really bring pride to the cross? No. No. It humbles me. 1 Peter 5.5, 5, look at this. This is the new heart. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with what? Humility towards one another. Humility and accurate knowledge of yourself before God applied in relationships. Humility towards one another, because here's the truth. You see this? God, what? Opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You fear God now? Do you want him to oppose you? Do you want him to need to bring you down, teach you humility? No, thank you. God opposes the proud, but, but if you humble yourself before him, what does he give you? Grace. It's grace to the humble. I need his grace. I want to be humble. Lord, make me more humble. And then look at Jesus, Philippians 2. This is, for the, this is for the new person, the new heart, the Christian. 
Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It's already yours because you have a new heart. You're united to Jesus. This is yours in Christ Jesus. And what is this, this mind, this attitude? Verse 6, who, though he was in the form of God, I mean, if anybody could come and be prideful and be deserving of it, be Jesus. But no, he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We are supposed to be amazed at Jesus' humility. And then if with a new heart, we'll see pride as a curse and humility as freedom. This was so countercultural in the Roman world. They had no category for humility being a virtue. But this is a value for the Christian. And it sets us free because we're not defined by what people say about us. We don't live for people's praise or notice or thanks. We know Jesus notices us. He loves us. He's served us. The new heart says, you know what? I'm still prideful. I got to fight that. But humility looks better to me. I want to be humble. So having said all that, what does it look like to be a Christian? It's not fixing yourself to become a good person as if you could. It's not just believing a list of facts to be true. It's having a changed heart that loves God and his word through faith in Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. So church, this is what I hope for us this morning. Hear the declaration, Jesus accomplished the new covenant for you so that you could have a new heart. Second, receive the transformation. Believe the gospel and be changed. Third, lean into the renovation that God is working in your life to purify your heart so that you will love him and love to live in obedience to him. Amen? Amen. That's us today. So at the end of the service, after we sing, we usually play a, a postlude. Julie's gonna play piano for us. I wanna invite some of you to stay in here and pray. Pray about your heart. Pray about something God's showing you today. Maybe he's saying something to you. I, I didn't even think of. He's pressing something in on you. We want to just give you a setting, an opportunity. Stay in here just for a few minutes after the service and pray. I'll be in here. If you want to pray with me, I'd love to pray with you. If you want to pray by yourself, pray by yourself. But if God's calling you to present your heart to him, don't pass that by. Let's pray now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and it certainly confronts us so powerfully. But we thank you for your great love for us and your power to us through Jesus and what he's done. Oh, Lord, let the Holy Spirit fall. And uh, for those who don't know you, Lord, change their hearts to trust Jesus. Lord, for, for those of us who do know you, Lord, thrill us with the reality of what you've done, that we're your children, that we're forgiven, that we are loved, we are welcomed. And Lord, let us lean in now to what you have for us, that we would grow in holiness not like a, a straitjacket burden, but because we love you. Do this work in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.